Father, we do delight in your love, your love which is infinite, your love which is full of holiness and glory and beauty and all centered in and wrapped up in your work in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our Lord, you are in body and in work and in glory, the very manifestation in a way that could only be designed and planned and ordained by God, the very expression of that love, as well as of holiness and justice, of goodness and mercy and wrath, all of the divine perfections so gloriously displayed in you. But the one that captures our heart is the love that has been shown to us, the love that has been shown to us that causes our hearts to look upward with gratitude and thankfulness and obedience. Faith and hope will one day no longer be necessary, but what will endure throughout all ages is love, as Paul reminds us. Now, as we open your word, we do pray that you would encourage our hearts to uh, delight in your truth and to gain wisdom as you give us divine counsel on suffering righteously and what that looks like and how we are to do it well and what your purposes are in it. Teach us, we pray, by the Spirit. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We will be looking this morning at verses 13 through 17. Uh, verses 13 through 17 in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, one of the oddest things to me, maybe to you, I think I've mentioned this before, is the fact that Christians are so hated by the world. I always find that a bit curious. It seems weird, actually, and a bit odd. Christians who are known or should be known, of course they all aren't, but by their meekness, by their humility, by their graciousness of life, by their forgiveness, their honesty, their integrity, by their willingness to serve and be self-sacrificial, are so hated by so many in the world. Why Christ would be so hated by the world. Christ, who is the very embodiment of God's love, who is the very center of God's message of grace and his goodness to humanity. We all want forgiveness. We as humans want to be forgiven by others. And here is the great proclamation of God's forgiveness in Christ, even as the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, Ho, come, drink from the waters, the streams without cost. Drink from the rivers and the streams of life as Scripture constantly calls us to do. And yet, Christ is so hated. Christ, who was, by his own description and by affirmation of his life, who was meek and humble and gentle, Christ, who laid himself down silently as a lamb and as a sacrifice for the sin of others, and yet was so vehemently hated. That's, that's always a, a bit perplexing at one level to see that. And yet it is true. It is a part of the Christian life as well that we who identify with Christ can expect not the friendship of the world, but rather the hostility of the world. Can expect in large part, and in the big picture, not the acceptance of the world with glad and open arms, but rather the persecution of the world in various ways and in various manners. So the call to follow Christ is in a very real sense a call to suffer for Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, that's how we prove our sonship. That's how we prove our possession of the Spirit of God, is that we suffer for the name of Christ. 
Not everyone suffers, of course, in the same manner. Not everyone suffers at the same time. Not everyone suffers with the same intensity. But suffering is a part of that call that Christ said to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. And though we know little of physical suffering in our context in America, we know that that also can change, as it has for other people throughout the history of the world. That the hatred against the name of Christ is not decreasing, it is only increasing and getting more intense. And that is directly correlated with an abandonment of us as a nation and as a culture of the sense of the transcendence and the glory of God. For whatever faults our founding fathers had, there was at least generally, even those who weren't truly Christians, an acknowledgement that there is a God who is transcendent. And that he is above human laws, that he is above humanity in terms of his authority and his rule. Again, however many may have defined that, there was at least an understanding that man and man's wisdom and man's purposes is not ultimate. There is someone else who is ultimate. But the further we get away from that, it creates a kind of vacuum in the hearts of men because we want order. It is natural to the hearts of men to submit to some kind of authority. And if that authority isn't ultimately going to be the transcendent majesty of God, it's going to be something else. And here we enter in human government and human authority. This is where we get regimes that are associated with such movements, political and so forth, of socialism and Marxism and those kind of things. Man takes the place and human authority takes the place of God. And the less and less that we acknowledge this transcendence of God, then we can expect more and more of the wickedness of man to increase. And the main recipients of that abandonment are going to be Christians themselves, are going to be Christians. It's not religion that men hate so much. It is the religion of Christianity. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And so the counsel that Paul, or that God gives us through Peter is counsel that is needed by the church throughout all of the ages. It's counsel of how we are to understand suffering in this world and how we are to respond to suffering in this world. And so it is this morning in verses 13 through 17, which can be summarized, at least in one way, as God's divine counsel for righteous suffering, righteous suffering. To suffer, that is, for righteousness' sake and for Christ's sake. So we're going to look at this just in three big points. The paradoxes of suffering, the proper attitude of the righteous in suffering, and the purpose of suffering, righteous suffering. So let me read the passage and then we'll just, we'll look at these. Begin with me in verse uh, 13 down to verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Uh, Let's notice first here just the paradoxes of righteous suffering. The paradoxes of righteous suffering. And it is for righteousness that those whom Peter is addressing here are suffering. It is for righteousness' sake. Now, some take this to refer 
to the ultimate harm that believers are protected from. In other words, it is that who is there to harm you? Who is there to harm you ultimately, they might say? Who is there to harm you in the ultimate sense of destroying or doing damage to your soul if you belong to Christ? In other words, there is an eschatological focus. There is a focus here, they would say, on the end times. Very similar to what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who is against us? Ending that great chapter with what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so some would see here then saying, Who can harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Who can harm you ultimately in the end? But it seems better here to take this as a general statement of a principle of life. Namely that if we do good and if we are marked by the good that God defines as right behavior in this world, that it generally will go better for us in this life. It generally will go better for us even living in a world hostile to the gospel. So it expresses really the idea of a normal expectation for displaying Christian integrity. That if we are zealous for what is good, then we are spared from much of the hostility of the world. And that makes sense. We can identify with that. Even Jesus himself said that the evil love those who are good to them. That even tax collectors and collectors, uh, their mark of the reprobate of the society, are kind to those who are kind to them. To those who are, are do good is the idea. That is, again, a general truism. It's a generally true statement. So one might wonder then, when you come into verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, how can that be? And here's the paradox. For how can you suffer? Why would turning away from evil and doing good bring suffering? Why would seeking peace bring suffering? Why would submitting to authority bring suffering? Why would being non-retaliatory and being humble in heart and blessing your enemies bring suffering? For God, for God has just defined those things as what it means to be righteous and what it means to do good. I mean, that's paradoxical. That doesn't seem to make sense. Why would anybody suffer for these things? And would anybody else besides a Christian suffer for those things? Do people generally suffer for those things? And yet here the possibility is laid out that Christians can suffer for those things. So how do we understand that? How can we, how can we put those pieces together? I think it's helpful to understand here what he means by righteousness. Christians suffer not so much for doing good, not for being honesty, honest and, not, and having integrity and so forth, but here it is specifically a suffering that is related to righteousness, a biblical kind of righteousness. It's that kind of righteousness that brings scorn and hatred and the ridicule of the world. Why is that? How is that? What is it about this righteousness that brings that kind of scorn and hatred? Let me suggest to you at least maybe a couple of things of how we're to understand this here, of why this could happen. And the first is that this is a righteousness that has content. It's righteousness in the Christian life that is directly connected to the message of Jesus Christ. It can't be separated. It's not a, a, a general kind of morality. It's not a general kind of virtue. It's not a general kind of doing good. It is a kind of virtue and morality and goodness that is directly attached to the name of Christ. To the name of Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to those who have placed their faith in Christ and who love him. 
He said in the first chapter, who have believed the message about Christ, content about Christ, truth about Christ. He says that those who have embraced and in fact been born again by the word of God, the living and enduring word of God. They are directly associated then in this righteousness with the name of Christ. He says over in chapter 4, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. The spirit of glory in God rests on you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. The church of God And those who are part of this church of God are those who are identified not merely with a general kind of morality, but those who are identified with the name of Christ. And they gathered together as a church. He says in chapter 5, he gives instruction to these same people about how they are to submit to their elders, how they are to live with harmony and humility with one another as the church. So these are people who have righteousness and a kind of moral life that cannot be detached from their profession and their identity with the person of Christ. And that is significant because to say that is to say then that the foundation and really what's being proclaimed in this kind of righteousness for which Christians will suffer is that it is an affirmation of everything that Christ is and everything that he claims to be. So in other words... It is a righteousness and good behavior in Christ that says that it is in service to him who is the only true God, who is the one who alone demands allegiance. It is to say then, by attaching it to the name of Christ, that they are serving the one who allows no competitors. It's not simply kindness, humility, and submission that is benign or vague. It's attached to the message of him who says he is exclusive. That there is an exclusivity to Christ that is being proclaimed in the goodness of the church. And that just as a side note here, when he says you, you, that them glorify God as they see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, Jesus said, is that it's not merely that we do good. It's not merely that we are honest and so forth. It is that it's important for us to have a true witness of Christ that our lives and our character is directly attached to our faith in Christ. That people should know we are who we are because we are serving him who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Because we are bowing our knee and our lives to him who is the one with the only true authority. And of course that is what brought Christianity into conflict with the ruling powers in Rome and throughout the history of the church and in fact ultimately will in our own nation. That it is attached to the name of him who is Lord And that means that even though there is a righteousness that produces good character that can be admired by many, it ultimately also is a character and a testimony that comes into conflict with the world because of the name of Christ. And so we can suffer for righteousness, particularly when people know that we are that because of our faithful allegiance to Christ. There's a second way. Righteousness contradicts unrighteousness. If it's biblical righteousness, it contradicts unrighteousness. In other words, it exposes the world's immorality. That's another reason why Christians can suffer for righteousness. One, it's attached in the name of Christ. It proclaims Him as the only Lord. It it proclaims an exclusivity. In other words, it even proclaims, if people get the message, 
back on the first point, that there is a righteousness that is evident in Christian's life that is superior to man's morality. In fact, it even confronts it, and that's the second point. It even confronts it. The righteousness of Christ and of Christian contradicts unrighteousness. At the core of the world's rejection of Christ and hatred of grace is this. You know, I wonder what comes into your mind. Uh, We don't have time for a survey, but let me at least suggest this. At the core of the world's hatred of the righteousness that is in Christians is this, is that it exposes sin. It exposes sin. It exposes what is deficient in the world's morality. Jesus said that to his brothers in John chapter 7, verse 7, that the world cannot hate you, but the world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. So a truly righteous life of spiritual integrity and biblical morality exposes the sin of others. And sin hates above all else to be exposed. Above anything else, sin hates to be exposed, to be shown for what it is. That's why, again, Jesus said in John that men don't come to the light because when they come to the light, their deeds are exposed as evil. They're exposed as evil. They're exposed as what they truly are. And sin will not have that, nor will sinners unrepentant have that. You can hear it sometimes in the snarky comment that's made of accusations, oh, you think you're holier than thou. You're holier than thou. You're so pious. And at times that may be a fair charge if we hold our holiness with a kind of arrogance and pride. But oftentimes that's a charge leveled against someone else who simply feels convicted by what that holiness reveals about their own life. Namely, guilt, that they aren't that. They aren't what they should be. You're holier than thou. It's also true that righteousness and obedience to Christ is going to come into conflict with the world continually. It's a rebuke to sin. It's a hindrance and a frustration to those who want to pursue sinful behavior. He mentions that over in chapter 4. He says to these Christians, they're surprised to you in verse 4, or surprised that the world is, former acquaintances or friends, that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. He says, they'll give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They say, hey, why don't you want to go out and do these things? Why don't you want to watch what we watch? How come you separate yourself when we listen to what we listen to? How come you separate yourself when we go where we go? How come you don't want to have any part in the conversations of the things that we talk about? Are you holier than thou? Uh, So it's a righteousness. It's an obedience to Christ that ultimately is going to come in conflict with the world. And so they look at you. He says they malign you. They attack you. They revile you. They turn against you. Why? Because your righteousness is... Confronts them. It confronts them for what they really are. He says in verse 14 of chapter 1 that as obedient children do not be conformed to your former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. And so when we are righteous with a biblical morality that confronts the morality of our culture and exposes its deficiency, we show that whatever they're holding on to is done in ignorance. It's not done in truth. And this exposes sin for what it is and brings then persecution. And so if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of being attached to the name of Christ, and for the sake of a righteousness that confronts the unrighteousness of the world. 
So if everybody else is lying and you tell the truth, that's a problem. If everybody else is doing something sinful and you're with a group of friends or coworkers or whatever and you won't participate in it, guess what? You're going to bring yourself into conflict and it's going to bring suffering. And so that's what he's capturing here. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, even if ultimately there should be in your desire to be obedient and conform to Christ's suffering, uh, know that it will happen. And so it's a certain kind of paradox. It's a certain kind of paradox. One, because it's suffering for doing what is good. Another paradox is, is that this kind of suffering of the righteousness marks blessedness. Look at what he says. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You are blessed. Again, that's paradoxical. This is not according to natural logic, the reasoning of our natural mind. Nor can it even be the experience of a person who is a natural person. Using the idea of uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural mind cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. In other words, an unregenerate mind. It's a reality of blessedness that can be experienced and is possible only for those who have the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. And it is then a, suf- a blessedness that comes directly to the kind of suffering. It's suffering for the name of Christ. It's not just suffering in general that makes one blessed. It's not the kind of general suffering you might encounter in life as you experience the tribulations and troubles of this world. It is a suffering that is a directly attached to your obedience to Christ. It's that kind of suffering. If that's the kind of suffering that you have, then there is a blessedness that comes with it. There's the blessedness that comes with it. How could it be blessed? What does Peter mean by you are blessed? Is this something that we experience merely by faith? Is it something that we experience in the midst of despairing, uh, in the midst of suffering, uh, or bearing the pain of the suffering? What does he mean by you are blessed? How can you be blessed in suffering? Because if you're suffering, it might feel like anything but being blessed. It might feel like anything but being blessed. How then can we be blessed? What does he mean here? Well, in one sense, he means this. That in God's economy, it proves your faith. If you're suffering for righteousness, it proves your faith. If you compromise and cower and hide at every opportunity that your faith will actually cost you something, that doesn't affirm your faith. It actually speaks against it. It doesn't confirm your commitment to Christ. It speaks against it. But if there is a cost to pay, if there is a price to be paid, if there is something that is to be suffered for the sake of obedience to Christ and you do it, anyway, out of obedience to Him, then it affirms your faith. This is what he says in verse 6, in chapter 1. You greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith may be made known, and it's more precious than gold, which is perishable. So if you're distressed by various trials, if you are Suffering in some measure because of your righteousness, then it proves your faith. And you should have great encouragement. You should look at yourself and go, God has done a work of grace in my heart. I really am a Christian. I really am. Why? Because when it's tested and when I'm put up against the wall, I see that I'd rather be obedient to Christ than to sin against him. I see that I'd rather court his favor rather than the court the favor of the world. And it proves our faith. And it gives us confidence. I'm sure you've had experiences like that. I have. 
where you see some work of the Spirit and it just kind of hits you. I really am a Christian. God really did save me. Like this isn't just something I'm doing. God really did transform my heart and I really do love Christ, stumbling though I may be, I really do love him. And, and it has that kind of effect. And in that sense, there is a blessedness that comes from that. There's a blessedness that comes as well in the understanding of our suffering producing for us eternal reward. Eternal reward. And this is again why to live the Christian life effectively And what scripture always points us to is that we have to look beyond what we can see with merely our eyes and look to what God has promised. We as Christians, yes, we are grounded in and have confidence in what God has done, historical truths, realities of God's working in the lives of of men in this world. But ultimately, we are a people who live by faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. We bring what God has promised into our presence and we live by it even though we don't actually have it yet. We don't actually yet fully experience it. And so we live by faith. And so what enables us to be blessed in the midst of this suffering is understanding that our suffering for Christ's sake brings future reward. And it's not something that anyone can see. It's not something that anyone can see. It's something that we know because the Spirit of God affirms it within our heart. So Paul said this, a passage we're familiar with in 2 Corinthians. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, and that's pretty amazing. I think we're all stopped by that word. Light affliction. I would call what he endured anything but light affliction. But listen to why he calls it that. Not because he's minimizing the pain, but because he's comparing it with something greater. He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And he picks up on his words in Romans 8 where he says, I don't consider the suffering of this time or this world worthy to be compared with the glories that are to come. That's faith. He says in verse 18, why we look not at the things which are seen... But the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so he understood that, and the righteous who are willing to suffer for the name of Christ understood that. How do the people of God endure what they have endured throughout the history of the world and the history of the church is because they're looking at things not seen. The world looks at that and goes, look at these stupid Christians and look how strong and powerful we are. Look how mighty we are and how we rule over them. But Christians realize, for right now you do. But that's not the end of the story. We have a reward that is ours. We have a salvation is ours. And in God's own timing, he will set things right. He will do what is right. He will establish his kingdom And so how can we be blessed in the midst of suffering is laying hold of this by faith, knowing that it proves our faith, and then knowing that our future reward is settled. It's settled. That's the only way that we could experience the reality of this blessedness. And I would note another part of it, the way that this blessedness works out, is when we do lay hold of these things by faith, we have the comforts of faith that come with it. Again, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It brings into the present what is promised. And there is a trust in God that can be known, empowered by the Holy Spirit, where we are comforted in the midst of our suffering. 
That's how the Spirit ministers to us. So these are certain paradoxes then of suffering. One is that it's for righteousness sake. That's paradoxical. But we can understand that when we understand that righteousness is attached to the name of Christ and a biblical obedience is going to bring us very often into confrontation with the world and with our culture. And you have to decide, Christian, and I have to decide, and we have to decide, are we willing to stand against what the world says is right when God says it's wrong? Are we willing to not watch, not listen to, not think, not buy the philosophy of the world if we're the only ones in our particular context who says that it's wrong? That's not right. I hope so. May God give us grace to do so. It's also paradoxical in this sense in that what would seem like abandonment or what would seem like futility to the world to suffer for the name of Christ, God calls it being blessed. God calls it blessed. And so Christians are a paradox to the world, aren't we? We're a paradox. We're estranged to them. It doesn't make sense unless you have the Spirit of God. And then it makes perfect sense. Number two, another counsel that he gives us is to understand then that we need a proper attitude in righteous suffering. We need a proper attitude. He says, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. The first proper attitude is this, and it's at the second part of verse 14. It is to have confidence in Christ. It's to have confidence in Christ. It's to have confidence in Christ that is in tandem with, that is in connection with, or that is bound to submission to Christ. It's confidence that is bound to submission. And those things really have to go together. Now you'll notice in your Bibles that it has, uh, most likely anyway, that it has all capital letters there. It puts that phrase at the end of verse 14. It sets it off as different and however they, they put it and uh, typed it out. Uh, it says here, and do not fear their intimidation in the New American Standard and do not be troubled. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. You could more literally uh, take this, and the, um, the uh, authorized standard version does, that you should not fear the fear of them or be troubled, or as the ASV, the uh, authorized standard version says, and fear not their fear, neither be troubled. Fear not their fear, neither be troubled. And in that sense, and in that way, it is a direct quote of Isaiah chapter 8. He's pulling from Isaiah chapter 8. And it's important in this case to note the context there just briefly. Here's the quote in Isaiah 8. And as Peter often does, he's quoting from the Septuagint. And y'all are familiar with that. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's quoting very often from that uh, in his letter. And he does so here. But here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 8. He says, actually let me begin in verse 11. He says, For thus says the Lord spoke to me, or for thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. There's our quote. It is the Lord, verse 13, of hosts, whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, both, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. Remember, Peter's referenced that already, too. And a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
Many will stumble over them, verse 15. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. So what is Peter connecting to here? Why is he using that verse? Why that particular reference? Well, in brief, the context is this. God has sent a prophet to Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Jerusalem or the king of Judah at this time. You'll remember that's the southern tribe. The southern tribe still residing in the land of Jerusalem, the land of Judah. The northern tribes had their capital in Samaria. They went north. And there's a threat. There's a threat that's coming against both the northern tribes and then eventually will come against the southern tribes as well. And it's the threat of Assyria, the nation of Assyria. And the king of Israel, who was a wicked king, and those of uh, wanted to form an alliance with the king of Judah, with Ahaz, against the Assyrian nation. He wanted to form an alliance against the Assyrian nation. And the king of Judah wouldn't do it. And God had sent him, actually, if you're in verse chapter 7, uh, a word of help. And it says in verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, ask a sign for yourself. And this is where we get that prophetic word, looking forward ultimately to Christ. He says, God's going to give him a sign. Ahaz said, no, I basically, I'm, I'm not going to give you a sign out of my humility. But it wasn't humility. He didn't ask for a sign because he was conspiring to do something else. That was the issue, and God knew that. And so God says through the prophet, I'm going to give you a sign, and that's, behold, a virgin with child will bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, and so on. But the issue here is that Ahaz, instead of forming an alliance, was also was planning and calculating to form an alliance with Assyria. And so rather than trusting in God, he was going to trust in his own ability to defeat this threat by actually joining by actually making a kind of covenant with this other nation, the nation of Assyria. And so that's what he's addressing here. He's addressing essentially a misplaced trust. A misplaced trust. The prophet is calling Ahaz and the people of Judah not to trust in your own effort, not to trust in an empty alliance, but to trust in God. To be faithful to his covenant and not to fear the evil intentions and the conspiracies of these threatening rulers and nations. And the idea is that those who trust him then will find him to be a refuge in trouble and a more solid ground. But those who don't will find him to be a stumbling block, God himself, and a means of their destruction and fall. So they have the choice to trust God And to be obedient even against the threats that are against them or to trust in their own ingenuity. So Peter is pulling from this in this context and he says, Do not fear what they fear. Do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. Do not be troubled. And the basic idea of this is this. The main idea is this. Do not fear any threat that comes against you In faithfulness to God, but trust in God. That's the idea. Trust in Him. One noted that in both contexts, the exhortation is this, is on being afraid, not of other people, but of only of the Lord. Fear only the Lord, not the threats that come against you for your obedience to the Lord. And so here, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not... Fear what they fear. It could be taken either way. But have confidence in Christ who is Lord. So when, when Peter here 
says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Or you could say the emphasis here is as Lord, sanctify Christ. As Lord, sanctify Christ. Set him apart in your heart. He's doing this. He's pointing to the sovereign glory of Christ and saying this is the Lord alone whom you are to fear. Not the threats against you, but him who has divine authority over every institution, who has divine authority over every threat of men, who has divine authority over every circumstance of our lives. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And if in our hearts, the inner reality of our confession, we grasp this glory of Christ, it's going to be evident in the way that we trust him in the midst of threats. So it is to say then, set apart our inner allegiance and our trust and our obedience to him who is sovereign, to him who is Lord over every situation. That he is Lord. And that doesn't mean, again, that there's not suffering. It is to say that we realize Christ is sovereign over our suffering. Let me give you just one example. In Acts chapter 4, after being persecuted, taken away by the leaders for the proclamation of the gospel, the apostles. It says in verse 23 of Acts 4, when they had been released, they went to their own companions, reported to the, uh, all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord, and they said in verse 24, O Lord, it is you who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord... Take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants, your slaves, may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders and take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Why were they able to do that? Because they sanctified Christ as Lord in their heart. The threats came, the suffering was real, uh, real, but they understood that Christ had absolute sovereign authority over everything. And what was the effect of that? They spoke the word with boldness. Boldness. To sanctify Christ as Lord is to say that in these threats against me, I realize that the only true sovereign in this situation is Christ himself, is God himself. And just as a little interesting footnote, here, as the New Testament often does, takes the language of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 8 and transfers it to refer to Christ as Lord in 1 Peter. Speaking here of his divine authority, his divine power, his divine glory. And so to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts begins with this, which is saying that I am submitted to him who is Ruler over all things. I will not bow my knee to Caesar. I bow my knee only to Christ. And I realize that he is the one who is in control of these situations. Let me just give you 
there's, there's so many uh, beyond that in Acts 4. Uh, one example from a guy, a man who, a brother, who was a covenanter. A covenanter was, uh, Scottish covenanters particularly, were those who stood against the authority of the civil government, in this case, who claimed to have headship over the church. And they claimed that no one is head over the church except Christ alone. And that proclamation brought them into direct conflict with the authorities of the state, and they lost their lives. And there's tremendous stories of faithfulness out of this time. One comes to us in a man named John Nisbet. John Nisbet. Again, he was one who would acknowledge Christ alone as being king, and that he alone as being the one who deserves the obedience and allegiance of his people. No man, no human. And so, in order to fulfill his ministry and being Kept from being captured, he spent much of his time out of sight and even away from his family. And one author gives this account uh, that he received upon, or of, John, of John Nisbet upon receiving the news that his wife and children were dead and dying. Says, he says, uh, the author does, News came to John Nisbet, and arriving eight days later, he entered the sheep cot where there was not light from fire but, but that of a candle, no bed but that of straw, no stool but the ground to sit on. Friends were putting his little daughter in her rude coffin. She had died. Stooping down, he kissed her tenderly, saying, Religion does not make us void of natural affection, but we should be sure it runs in the channel of sanctified submission to the will of God, of whom we have our being. Turning to a corner where two of his sons lay in a burning fever, he spoke to them, but they did not know him. He groaned, saying, Naked came I into this world, and naked I must go out of it. The Lord is making my passage easy. One of the friends said to him, I hope you know who has done this. But the covenanter's eyes were ever on God. And John Nisbet answered, as one whose thought was taken up in profound and inaccessible mystery, passing all second causes. I know that he, this is his word, John Nisbet. I know that he has done it that makes all things work together for good of them who love him and keep his way, even he who first loved us. And this is my comfort. A later account of him being put to death, that he was hastening the day because he knew his death would be transference. It would be a a moving into the glorious kingdom of the Christ whom he served. He had the faith that here Peter is calling us to, to sanctify Christ as Lord in hearts, to know that in suffering there is blessedness when we trust in Christ. And so to sanctify Christ as Lord means we can live boldly for him. We can witness in the face of opposition. When we sanctify Christ as Lord, it means we trust his sovereign ruling and guiding in the details of our lives in that situation we find ourselves in. That's a threat. To say that we sanctify Christ as Lord is to say that we trust him in his sovereign purposes to bring about what he's promised. In other words, that nothing we do for Christ is in vain. That nothing is in vain. That giving our lives for Christ is not in vain. Sacrificing certain temporary pleasures when the gospel would call us to that is not in vain. Being ostracized and suffering the rejection of the world if it would come to that is not in vain. To sanctify Christ as Lord said no because the one who is sovereign has made me a true promise. A certain promise. And I will trust in that. To sanctify Christ as Lord is to say that we are trusting His sovereignty and enablement by the Spirit to fulfill our witness. We're trusting Him who rules over the nations 
and will in the end bring whatever temporary threat we face in the moment to ultimate ruin. That's how he ends the epistle, verse 10 of chapter 5. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. This is what it means to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. And that's the first attitude. The first inward reality of faith that enables us to suffer righteously. He mentions the second one. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I think we could summarize that in this way. That the, separate, the, the second way that we prepare our hearts is one is we are sanctify Christ as Lord and we're growing in the knowledge of Christ. We're growing in the knowledge of Christ. He's going to say in his second epistle at the beginning that our godliness, our strength is compelled, it's undergirded, it's grown. It finds solid ground in this through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellencies. By these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. To always be ready to give a defense to those who ask us for the hope that is in us is to say that there is a knowledge of Christ that we are able to communicate a knowledge of that hope to those who ask. And it is with an attitude of always being ready. And that is a simple way to say that we're always living under the lordship of Christ. We're always living under obedience to Christ. It's not that we're just kind of going through life happily, uh, witnessing opportunity, sanctify Christ really quick as Lord in my heart, and then I'm going to be ready. That's not the idea. The idea is that to be a Christian is to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ and to follow him so that as we are moment by moment living in obedience to him, walking by the Spirit, that when those opportunities come, we're ready. We're ready. We're ready to speak of our hope, that we're not caught in a spiritual slumber, that we always have our minds set on the things above, ordering our lives in obedience to Christ, not being caught off guard or in a state of spiritual disobedience or laziness. Always being ready to make a defense, that is to defend, to give a reasoned argument, a coherent case for Christ and why we trust him. Who he is, what he has done, what are God's purposes in him. And and just as a side note, the, the implication is here, which has already been established, that your life is different enough from the world around you that they have a reason to ask. For the church to think that our witness is by being more like the culture rather than standing against it in as much as it opposes the word of God is foolishness. It's foolishness. For us to think that our witness is going to be strengthened by somehow our compromise on what righteousness is, is foolishness. It's stupid, biblically speaking. That's not going to happen. Our witness for Christ is by how much we stand against it to say, look, I live for Christ and that is something so far superior, so far superior to anything this world counts as righteous or virtuous. And certainly in in terms of its sinfulness. 
So the term here, apologia, has its roots. It, it has its roots in, a, in the idea of a legal setting. And for that case, some see here in the use of this term uh, a reference to those who are dragged before the courts, who are dragged before civil courts, and they're to be ready in that context to speak. And Jesus mentions that in Matthew. He mentions that when they drag you before rulers and kings and so forth, that the fa- your father will give you what you are to say in that time. So that is the case for some, but that's, that's not the case here. It's not a legal setting. He's rather referring to that readiness to always give it a reason for the hope that is in us, to give an account or a statement for the, for the hope that is in us as we live in the everyday milieu of life and the opportunities that come. Look at what he says here that makes this evident. He says to everyone who asks you, not to the judge who asks you, not to the king who asks you, not to the magistrate who asks you, to everyone who asks you, to those whom you come in contact with in living in this world. As they see your life, as it's different, as it stands out, and they ask you about it, be ready to tell them about it. Now, what does that mean? It means this, at the very least. It means, one, that we need to have a reasonable knowledge of him. Now, let me just make a couple of notes on that. In one sense, it's possible for every Christian to obey this command. For every Christian to obey this man, a command. If somebody has been a Christian for 30 minutes, they should obey this command. And they have the ability in that sense to obey this command. To give a defense for the reason, for the hope that is in them. We do not wait until we have all knowledge and have mastered every argument, have studied every world religion, and formulated an argument to give a defense for the reason that uh, the hope that is in us or to evangelize. We don't need some advanced level of education before we speak of Christ and defend him. If you are a true Christian, then the Holy Spirit has given to you a wisdom and an insight that the world does not have. And the wisdom and the insight that he's given is that he's revealed the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to you. It means you understand things spiritually and truly in a way that a non-Christian does not. You cannot be a Christian without believing a body of truth. The gospel, as we've mentioned, is a message. You've heard sometimes that, you know, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. I mean, that's, I don't want to offend anybody, but that's, well, that's just not a good statement. It's, uh, that's not helpful. The gospel is What the gospel produces in your life is holiness. The gospel is not what it produces. It is the message believed. It is the person loved. It is the truth that is followed. That is the gospel. And we should, if we believe in Christ, we know enough to be saved. We know enough about him to be saved. Again, Peter said that you've been born again, not a seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So if you've placed your faith in Christ... You've spiritually apprehended the truth of the gospel. If you believe the message, you know enough to tell somebody else about the hope that is in you. So we should never be intimidated by our lack of knowledge of every detailed argument or apologetic course or whatever. If you know Christ and you believe in him truly, you can obey this command. You can sanctify him as Lord and you can speak to someone about why you trust him. It doesn't mean you have an answer for every argument. It doesn't mean you know every historical detail and every new discovery. It doesn't mean all of that. Those things are helpful. But you have enough to tell someone about Christ who died 
and rose again for you. And there's another sense, however, in which we don't want to rest on that alone. There's no, there's no virtue in being ignorant. Simplicity is, in one sense, if it's the simplicity of our devotion to Christ, it's good. If it's simplicity in terms of our understanding of the gospel, it's not good. And we should never be satisfied with that. We should know more about Christ as we grow. As a matter of fact, this is precisely what the writer of Hebrews said when he's writing to them. And this is, again, second generation. Those who should know better. He says in verse 5, By this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. In other words, you shouldn't be as ignorant of these truths as you are. You're not to be commended for that. You are to be confronted for that. Why, after being in Christ so long, are you still so spiritually immature? So we just want to say that there's no virtue by, just, by saying, I don't really concern myself with the deep things of God I don't really concern myself with understanding doctrine better. I don't really concern myself with any of those things. There's no virtue in that. We should be always increasing in our ability to give a more reasoned defense of the gospel. In as much as our ability and our time and our effort and our circumstances allow us to do. That, of course, is going to be different with each individual. But it means that we should pursue to do the best that we can. It implies that we grow in our understanding of the hope that is in us. Again, I just note that ignorance does not produce maturity. Ignorance does not produce maturity. Knowledge produces maturity. And not just knowledge that is bare knowledge, because the Pharisees had that. As the writer of Hebrews said, it's knowledge that's matched with obedience of life. Obedience to the truth that we know. And that enables us then to have more evident hope in us and to be able to defend it. Knowledge matched with obedience produces maturity and the stability of faith that enables us to live this out. So the gospel is simple. It's not a complex message, yet it is profound and God's word is deep. It is a deep well that exposes error, defends truth and stands against every threat and we are always to be ready to do our best to defend Christ and his word. And yet, it's not to be with haughtiness. So look at what else he says. It's to display. It's to, we, are to, uh, we are to do this. We are to uh, defend Christ and speak of him. Not with haughtiness, but he says with gentleness and reverence. With gentleness and reverence. Gentleness. Having a good conscience. A good conscience. You know, gentleness and reverence is something we especially need to learn as new Christians. I can remember uh, what stood out to me when, when I at least was going through this uh, this time is there was early on, there was a lot of things that were helpful. But one, there was a guy named Jay that I worked with. And uh, we'd have, as I did with, with all of the guys I worked with, these discussions. And Jay said to me one time after work, he says, you know, because he knew I was going to go to be a pastor. I was eventually looking to seminary. And he says, you know, every time that you like, that we talk and he's like, you smile at me and you kind of do, he says, it's very intimidating. It kind of makes, you know, almost like the attitude of, 
this is so stupid, how could you believe that? Let me tell you the truth. And that was very helpful to me because I did not realize that I was communicating that kind of attitude. And so I tried to pay more attention and I tried to listen more. I mean, I still thought that your arguments were not good. But, but the point is, is that it's how you communicate it. It's what you say. It's how we approach it. And so that was very helpful. And so what he's saying here is yet we're to do this with gentleness because we can have the truth and then cover the truth over so that it's never heard because of our attitudes because of the way that we approach it. And he says, we are to give an account, but we are to do so with gentleness and reverence. Not with arrogance, not with haughtiness, not with harshness, but with gentleness and reverence. And the reverence here is reverence, primarily reverence towards God, with a reverence toward God. Humility. Jesus was marked by this. Again, all of this is reflecting the character of Jesus, his life in us. He strongly rebuked the hypocrisy of the leaders of the nation. We know that. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, and so on. And other times, you're of your father, the devil. Why can't you hear me? Because I speak from God and you're of Satan, essentially. So he was not, he would not shy away from speaking hard things in a hard way as the situation called for it. But the overall demeanor of his life is what he said in Matthew 11. Come to me for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. Gentle and humble in heart. And that should be the overall demeanor. We are to speak boldly to be sure, but the overall demeanor of our witness should be one of gentleness. So we speak boldly and clearly, not compromising, not dulling the sharp edges of the gospel because there are sharp edges that sting and hurt, but to do so in a way that it can be heard. This should be our prayer. Before you go into work, before you plan a time to witness before you go to that family dinner where you know that you're going to be speaking to someone or you go into that environment where you're expecting to have opportunities to witness. This should be our prayer. It should be this. Praying at the same time for us that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned. This is Colossians 4. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak That we would conduct ourselves or conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. How do we conduct ourselves with wisdom in this way? Let your speech be always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. That's the idea. That's the idea. That should be our regular prayer. Help me to be gracious in my speech. And some of us, that's easier. Some of us who have a tendency to enjoy argument that's harder but we all need to make sure that our demeanor is growing in a kind of gentleness a kind of gentleness that matches the character of Christ whom we are proclaiming whom we are proclaiming but there's something else and I want to note here what enables us to be gentle well there is humility there is an understanding of our own uh, need of grace and that we walk in grace but there's something else too There is the fact that we trust that it is not our arguments that are going to convince somebody to be a Christian. They're simply not. We need to give good arguments. We need to know Scripture and we need to argue from Scripture. But at the same time, I don't care how good your argument is, you are not going to win somebody to Christ because of your argument. If you think that you can, then you have just surpassed Jesus and Paul. And I doubt you want to take that honor to yourself. It's not a matter of the skill of your argument, though it must be skilled. It is a matter of the Holy Spirit who must take that word and draw someone to Christ. 
who must give understanding and draw them to Christ. And if we can grasp that, it helps us to be gentle. It helps us to be calm in the situation. It helps us to be not anxious and restless as if I have to convince them they have to get this. They have to understand. No, we have to be clear. We have to speak the truth and we have to trust God, the Spirit, to do His work if that's what He's going to do. And so that helps us as well to be gentle. That helps us in this part of sanctifying Christ as Lord. He is Lord. He will draw those to the Father. He will reveal the Father to those whom the Father has given to Him. And the Spirit is working in this situation. So we should do it with gentleness and reverence and with a good conscience. The last thing here, and I'm just going to mention it, is that the purpose of righteous suffering is so that, he says in verse um, 16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing right rather than for doing what is wrong. It is to know that God is sovereign over your suffering. The shame that is to come is ultimately the shame in the end of the age. They will be put to shame and they won't be put to shame here necessarily. But they will be ashamed when Christ returns and they are held account and their sin is exposed for what it is. He will bring them to shame. But we are those who trust in Christ, who rely on Him to do whatever He deems best in our life, and so to worship Him. Let us maintain a good conscience in doing this. Well, let me, let me pray. The exhortation here is this. Know that suffering is going to come that our lives need to be clearly attached to the person of Christ. Be ready for our commitment to Christ to bring us in opposition with those who are around us so that we, might, so that we know that we could suffer for the sake of righteousness. We are to do so with confidence in Christ. We are to do so living under His Lordship. We are to do so always being as ready as we can to give an account for the hope that is in in us. We are to do so with His character, to be reverent and gentle before God and gentle with others. And we are to maintain a good conscience, knowing then that the, the integrity of our lives ultimately will be what affirms our testimony, brings glory to Christ, And looking beyond what we might experience here, we know that ultimately we will be shown to be inheritors of his kingdom and glory and those outside will be ashamed. But the gospel is worth it and Christ is worth it. Let me pray. Father, convince our hearts evermore and evermore of the glory of Christ. Convince our hearts evermore of our future reward in Christ. It's so easy to have that diminished and have the temporary pleasures strengthened, particularly with the influences that are so, so ever-present among us with entertainment and so forth. But help us to be more influenced by your word. May it have a stronger grip in our hearts. May it have its renewing and transforming power in our affections and in our mind that we would be clearly and more fully living for the kingdom to come. And again, I pray for those who may not know you, that you would open their eyes to see this glory, to see that it's truly superior to all else, and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And to this end we pray.
for ourselves, for us as a church, and your church in this nation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.